from my point of view, one of the things I found interesting working for Hong Kong Watch has been seeing the pressure on colleagues of, of mine. Um, ben Rogers in particular has come under quite considerable pressure at various points. Uh, in 2017, he wrote an op-ed about kind of marking the 20th anniversary of the handover of Hong Kong and raising concerns about the human rights situation there. And two days before it was due to be published, he received a phone call from a Tory MP who had close ties to the embassy saying that the embassy had been on the phone, obviously had some access to Ben's emails, potentially with activists in Hong Kong. Uh, the embassy had suggested to this MP that he might encourage Ben not to not to write that op-ed. And so there, there clearly have been stories stories like this and influence behind the scenes for quite some time. I guess what's changed is is how we view that and we're not in the golden era anymore. Welcome to The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Daniel Pryor and I'm the head of research at the ASI. And in this week's episode, I'm pleased to be joined by my co-host and director of strategy, John McDonald, as well as our special guest, Johnny Patterson, the co-founder and policy director at Hong Kong Watch. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing Christine Lee, Lift the Ban and Hong Kong. Last week, it was revealed that Christine Lee, a lawyer with offices in London and Birmingham, was operating as a Chinese Communist Party agent with the aim of infiltrating the UK's political institutions, most notably, and I think what really grabbed the headlines is that she donated the significant sum of, and I'm not making this up, £420,000 or so over five years to MP Barry Gardner's office. So I guess just to kick off, Johnny, what's the actual nature of Christine Lee's interference here and, and spying? What has she actually done that uh, that we should be concerned or at least surprised about? I mean, I, I guess what, what what's out there in the public is that she's been involved in A, buying influence through through Barry Gardner. B, um, I guess you, you've seen the photos of her shaking the hand of the prime, of former prime ministers. Um, clearly, very, very well networked and someone who has has access in the right places. Um, and I guess open conversation to be had about, about how meaningful that is. But if she is a Chinese spy, as, as has been discussed, that would be a cause for concern. Finally, there's there's interesting stories coming out around her, her ties with the business lobby and involvement in government procurement as well. And I think those three, those three issues are, are worth discussing. And is there kind of precedent for this? Is there a long-running theme of Chinese interference in UK politics, or is this more of a, a kind of a one-off um, surprise or, or revelation? Have we seen anything resembling this before? I mean, I think what's interesting with this story is that it's not particularly new, um, or at least everyone's been aware of Christine Lee's ties with Gary, Barry Gardner for for quite some time, and questions have been raised. So I think what's different here is that MI5 are now taking it clearly very seriously, and. I think we've seen a change in tone from the security services recently in terms of how seriously they're taking various elements of Chinese um, influence operations. One of the things I, I think that's interesting in this instance is that in Australia, they've been having these conversations for about five years um, and some major, major scandals blew up, which shaped um, Australian politics quite profoundly uh, around these kind of influence operations. And so there's real precedent there. In the UK, it's quite hard to know how deep how deep those ties go. Yeah, for me, that just comes across as an intuitively quite baffling that it's only just now that we're starting, all the security services are starting to take this seriously and that you know the previous status quo is just 
eh, yeah, okay, we just accept that this sort of thing goes on and that there's Chinese interference, CCP interference in politics. And, you know, that, that's no big deal. It almost seems like that was the, the previous attitude, but it, it's good to see that at least we, we're starting to see some changes towards that. Uh, John, on, on Barry Gardner specifically, um, do you think that, and I guess some of the other MPs that might uh, have had some sort of involvement or, or been the subject of interference, do you think these people are best characterized as kind of useful idiots or do you think that there is actually some level of of dissension or support for a foreign power amongst British parliamentarians? It's a weird one. I remember when I worked in, in CCHQ on the fundraising side of things, any sort of donation, I mean, even up to 500 quid that we were suspicious about was immediately vetoed. Um, and I remember, especially during the election, we had some some people in in mainland China trying to give money to the party under suspicious circumstances, and it was immediately shut down. So it su- surprises me somewhat that it's sort of in in the parliamentary Labour Party that that they're able to kind of channel funds in such a way that doesn't really attract attention like that. Uh, it, it strikes me that the sort of the compliance culture is slightly different, you know, in individual MPs' offices, for example. I would say that it's probably the sort of benign thing of Barry Gardner in this case having potential blind spots uh, as to the motivations of Christine Lee in this case. I'm not sure that he sort of is willingly supporting uh, CCP interference with our political processes at all. Uh, but it could just be that he's kind of not really very clued up about the kind of soft grey uh, tactics that, that are being used here. So it's uh, it's probably more that, as you said, uh, uh, he's being a useful idiot more than anything else. And looking into the, the character of our response to this, MI6 saying that uh, tackling this sort of thing, overtaking even uh, Islamic terror threats as their number one priority. Uh, and also we had a former guest on this podcast, Ian Duncan Smith, calling for Christine Lee to potentially be deported. Uh, are we concerned at all, Johnny, going to you first on this, about going a bit too McCarthyist on our response to this uh, and maybe overstepping the mark? What sort of things should we be doing uh, other than kind of prioritizing in, in the security services to make sure that this sort of thing doesn't happen as much in the future or, or is it just a case of actually we, we need to start uh, deporting people who are found to be spying or, or promoting the interests of a foreign regime i mean i think i think it's it's difficult to to say too black and white on this i i think that um the security services obviously need to p- place greater resources on on this kind of issue particularly if they've been caught napping a bit um in terms of in duncan smith's perspective on that i'm i'm not sure i have a clear view and i'm not sure i'd necessarily be calling for for deportation of, of everyone. Um, but I guess you've got to look at it on a case-by-case basis. I think one of the things that's interesting in this arena, though, is that often the people who are advocating for the Communist Party's interests, they're not necessarily all agents. Um, and actually, a lot of the strongest advocates in, in the UK, are, I think, in our political system for the interests of the Chinese Communist Party at the moment are, are probably um, people who want a piece of the pie in in China. So so I think if there's if there's something that needs to change in the short run, it's actually that we need to reset our China policy to, to a point that um, the economic interests of certain banks, etc, don't override national security and, and other values based interests. Because I think, I think that's where the problems lie. And if there's a reset that needs to happen, that would be it. I think we could knee jerk too far in terms of 
you know, isolating individuals and or some kind of hunt for people. But the problem, the problem in UK China policy at the moment is that the Treasury and the Foreign Office and the Security Services all seem to be singing from slightly different hymn sheets. And, and we need to be a bit more aligned and a bit more aware of the way that economically a lot of financial services institutions and others are very much kind of acting in the CCP's interests, I think. And yeah, I guess taking a historical approach to this, you mentioned that the different government departments not necessarily having uh, joined up thinking on China policy. If I'm someone, if I'm a listener that isn't as clued up on, on foreign policy and just coming into this afresh, what have the changes actually been uh, in recent years and, and perhaps the past decade or so in the UK's approach to China? Because we had uh, certainly quite a phase of active cooperation, uh, extreme friendliness towards uh, China and the Chinese government. And that seems to have changed at least partially in, in recent years in a number of different ways. We'll discuss uh, one of those ways as our third podcast topic for today. But how far have things changed since, um, say, the, the era of, of Cameron and Osborne? I guess that depends which department you're talking about. And in the era of Cameron and Osborne, China policy was Treasury policy. And so the um, the Treasury were basically dictating what, what happened and trade opportunities and access to Chinese market and exports and investment etc was was the kind of the go-to um at the expense probably of speaking up around issues like tibet and xinjiang as they emerged and potentially hong kong as well since then and i think particularly actually since the crackdown of hong on hong kong and the coronavirus outbreak making people more aware of the situation in china there has been a shift i think in some foreign office rhetoric and in particularly actually parliament and the press which has meant that the optics and the way that our relationship with China is framed has changed. And that is also, I think, a result of the fact that the Americans have obviously moved into quite a solid era of competition with the Chinese. All of that's to say that the Foreign Office are moving. They probably haven't totally moved, but they're moving away from the golden era. I think if you look at the statements that come out of the Treasury, still very little has changed. And that is probably one of the areas where I think greater scrutiny is needed, if I were to identify it at the moment. And John, what's your experience been on, on the ground when you've been chatting to, to MPs? Just Is there the kind of default attitude towards China, even amongst people who aren't necessarily as interested in, in China-related issues, changed in your experience? Obviously, you haven't been director of strategy at the Adam Smith <laughs> Institute since the era of, uh, of, of Cameron and Osborne. But do you sense that there is kind of more of a, a default uh, scepticism or hostility towards China, even if MPs aren't necessarily that's not their it's not in their top five issues <laughs> uh, the top five issues no I think it, it it roughly tracks with the way the political situation has developed when I talk to MPs from the sort of 2010 caucus they're generally more in line with that treasury line of thinking where they're very interested in the economic relationship with China and think that there are isolated incidents uh, and which we should be concerned about Chinese interference or, you know, Chinese activities in Hong Kong and in mainland China. And then the 2019 intake kind of have that skepticism that you're referring to. Is this a sort of like a, a weird middle period uh, of MPs who are who are less interested in having that conversation? Because obviously you've got the kind of IDS era, the early 2000s and MPs elected in the 90s who are, who are tr- quite sort of skeptical of the CCP. And then an intermission, and now we're kind of seeing seeing a bit more skepticism again. So it's almost a, a generational thing. That's, yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Interesting. And, and do you see much changes? Uh, question for both of you, I guess, on um, China policy in relation to Liz Truss and her new appointment. 
as foreign secretary? I mean, f- from my angle, what what I've seen out of Liz is more rhetoric in the regard to China. She's she's been quite good about being vocal on, on issues of concern like Xinjiang and Hong Kong. I'm yet to see the the relevant changes in policy, and and quite often the difficulty is is that as, as we were saying earlier, these policies aren't just foreign policy related; they're treasury related, they're home office related. Um, and so it, it's quite difficult, I think, to, to go back to what you said before, to get all the relevant departments singing from the same hymn sheet. I agree. I think there'll be there'll be interesting litmus tests in the coming year when when issues come before Parliament. Things like there's a potentially another a genocide amendment, which will essentially um, make it illegal to procure uh, products from companies if there's kind of credible evidence of genocide in the supply chains of the companies involved. And those kind of amendments. The government's historically been quite resistant to those campaigns when backbenchers have led them. And I think it'll be interesting to see whether Liz it brings a shift on that or whether it is more just a rhetorical shift without the corresponding um, shift in policy. And, and what's the resistance in the past been to that? How can how can people frame that argument in a way that doesn't make it very clear that they're kind of fine with genocide? I think often the resistance is, I mean, the previous round of debates was, a, was around a, an amendment to the trade bill that would have made it illegal to trade with states where a, a competent court had found them guilty of genocide and then was trying to domesticate the judgment of genocide to the British High Court so that the Uyghurs could have their day in court. And the resistance to that was essentially the government. I think in practice, the resistance was the government were concerned that if that came into law, um, they would find their trade relationships with China jeopardised. This is often where, as John says, you end up with this conflict between the different departments and the interests of the different departments. And actually, the Treasury wins the argument or number 10 intervenes on the side of the Treasury. And then in that context, you have a, a, a situation where there's there's good rhetoric from the front office but very little actual substantive action and to finish off on that the the kind of treasury argument that is put forward about trade in, in cases like this it speaks to a broader debate i think within certainly within free market circles of whether or not things like trade sanctions are actually going to have a positive impact or whether it you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot for no foreign policy beneficial impact and in fact you're just you know, impoverishing um either yourself or in the case of China, um, the average Chinese person on the street. Uh, What do you make of of that debate and where would you situate yourself, I guess? Because obviously you you seem to be, uh, I think for very good reason, quite sceptical of the the quote-unquote treasury view on this sort Mm. of thing. But do you think that there's any worth to those sort of arguments? So I think those sort of arguments can have merit. Um, And I think we have to be clever about the way we respond to these sort of issues. I think when I where I would situate myself is I think there are greater risks in deepening economic ties with China than people realise, firstly, and therefore people in the Treasury and elsewhere need to be thinking through those risks. And, you know, I mean, Evergrande's shown what some of them might be. I think um, the potential for conflict in Taiwan is another massive risk. And actually, you have a lot of British companies who would be very exposed. And in that context, the US would force us into a world where there are sanctions. So almost like taking aside the, the rights and wrongs of sanctions, we could be in a world where Americans are imposing massive economic or financial sanctions realistically within the next 10 years. That is a situation that could happen. Is the government factoring in? Is there anything about those kind of risks on the table at the moment? So those are the kind of issues I'm particularly interested in. I think the rights and wrongs of sanctions as a tool for change in Hong Kong, say, are, I mean, it's a compl- that's a really complicated piece. I think Magnitsky is a good tool. And I think targeted investment bans on certain companies with ties to Xinjiang is another thing people should be looking at. 
Yeah, it seems echoing a lot of uh, whenever we talked about China in the past on this podcast, we've always come back to the, well, definitely Magnitsky style sanctions and then <laughs> mm, maybe with, with regards to uh, other sort of measures as well. So um, good, good to have some continuity there. And I think on that note, we can move on to our second topic for this episode, which is the lift the ban campaign. In December last year, the Home Office finally published its long-awaited review of the UK's right-to-work policy for asylum seekers. Currently, asylum seekers are banned from getting a job in the UK for 12 months while they await the result of their application, and can then only apply for jobs on the government's shortage occupation list. But the Home Office review found no reason to change the existing system, despite years of arguments against the policy, spearheaded by the Lift the Ban Coalition, which is made up of hundreds of organisations. So I, I wanted to start off by asking... Uh, Johnny, perhaps I'll go to you on that. Is there support for lifting the ban uh, within, within the Conservative Party? It's it's quite a sound policy in centre-right terms. So you'd think it would be quite popular on the back benches. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, defer to you on this, John, but I, I've been working a little bit with Baroness Stroud on some of these themes, and, and we've been talking to people, and there are there is clear support across the board. And I think what's interesting with this sort of idea is it, it potentially could unify people in the free market caucus, people in the, the kind of one nation caucus and the social justice caucus in quite an, an interesting and powerful way, because it's a common sense argument. It's a compassionate argument and it aids integration and, and the economy. So I think there's a it, it does have support across the Conservative Party. I'd also note on the, the Home Office review you mentioned, it was essentially a 600 word op ed that they spent three years writing, which <laughs> which responds more to the um, more to the lift the ban it just kind of says we disagree with lift the ban's numbers because their methodology is wrong but it doesn't provide any numbers the home office didn't didn't provide any numbers of their own which i think really points to the weakness of the position that the home office has found itself in historically as an yeah. aside I, I find this quite often when i get letters back from from ministers or departments when when criticizing a policy is they'll explain the policy back to me but without actually engaging with any of the arguments that have been presented, uh, which is how I think you know that that they know that they're on the losing side of the debate there. Yeah, you, you'll have your MP uh, assistant or caseworker and the, the <laughs> yeah. generic copy email that gets sent out. And then maybe if you're lucky, you get your personalized paragraph. Um, yes. Not always. It I, I reads I, that way. John, are you highlighting just the... the utter ridiculousness of the home office's response you know as you said been waiting for years for the home office to come out with its review quote unquote of uh, lift the ban's recommendations reducing the waiting period from 12 months to six months which of course is much more in line with uh, comparable countries around the world uh, and has many benefits that i'm sure we'll get into and they they didn't even provide the methodology for their criticism of lift the ban's uh numbers when it came to positive fiscal impact saving money through uh, i mean amongst other things not paying asylum seekers uh, money not to work and instead letting them get a job but also improving their skills in the labor market and whatnot and then when quizzed about this and when asked um, the home office responded oh we have no obligation to provide uh, methodology it's joke government joke country <laughs> I, I often tweet joke country at, at when things like this happen and this to me is, is an absolutely prime candidate of, of you know you, you speak to someone from abroad and say oh what, what's it like in britain how's how's governance <laughs> you say well this <laughs> yeah no I, I will say they they can be particularly obtuse uh, in the in the way that they engage with those sorts of conversations which kind of brought me on to my next question that i that i want to ask uh which is 
why do you think that the Home Office is inclined in this sort of way if the arguments are all there? Is it, do you think, because this government is interested on on trying to attack with that hard-on immigration stance uh, that the Tories sometimes flirt with? Um, I mean, I know recently we've seen Boris claim that, that wages have been rising. Unfortunately, that has, in fact, been on the back of labor shortages, which is, is not exactly a great reason for a, for a short-term uh, hike in wages. But perhaps it's actually not in their immediate political interest, as, as upsetting as that might be for them to, to support something like this. Oh, I don't know about you, Johnny, but the one that I always come up against um, from people who are skeptical of lift the ban is the idea of creating a pull factor uh, and that it would encourage more asylum seekers to say cross the channel and the government would get more and more negative headlines and you know that would be a bad thing but again the home office itself and any kind of organization that's done serious credible research into this the relationship between labor market access and uh, overall numbers of asylum seekers hasn't found any credible evidence showing a a kind of serious long-term relationship between the two and this isn't really surprising to anyone that has a modicum of understanding about what what motivates asylum seekers. They, they don't tend to be, when you poll new arrivals, they don't tend to be even aware that they are banned or they will be banned from working when they arrive in the UK. So how on earth could a change in the policy possibly influence their decision when they weren't even aware of the policy in the first place? Um, I think the other thing is it kind of misunderstands how much of an impact or an influence that pull factors have versus push factors or you know fleeing for your life from uh, war or, or economic uh, destruction and, and devastation or any other reasons why people might choose to seek asylum on the shores mm. of the UK and you know most people are motivated by uh, they're very highly motivated by wanting to escape from something as opposed to wanting to come to something and, and you can just kind of illustrate that by looking at the UK in comparison to the rest of, of Western Europe as a potential destination despite you know repeated headlines about tens of thousands crossing the channel in absolute terms the uk is not um as big a destination as say france for example or far far less than um than the neighboring countries of places that are are currently seeing a lot of people flee from them yeah absolutely right and i think um i mean it's interesting that the government's migration advisory committee came out and totally slammed the pull factor about two weeks after the home office review was published they underlined that rights work would be incredibly important for integration and doesn't affect the pool factor i mean the pool factors if you if you're an eritrean refugee or something and you're coming to the uk what are the pool factors it's like our language our culture possibly family links is not going to be the the intricacies of the uk asylum system and how benevolent they've heard on the grapevine that our our asylum process is and i think i don't really understand where that logic comes from just imagine kind of someone in Afghanistan sitting down and thinking, right, I need to flee from the Taliban because they're, they're going to kill me and, and my family, or they, they have a credible reason to suspect that they may do. Um, and I've got a list of countries in front of me. And thankfully, I've, I've created my nice Google spreadsheet um, with the different country names and their different right to work periods for those awaiting the results of their asylum application. It's just, it's ludicrous to think, as you say, that this is significant factor and, and things like uh, cultural ties, family ties far, being far more important. Um, the, the integration thing that, that the Mac and, and yourself highlighted is especially important here and actually speaks to 
why I think that lifting the ban is is a fundamentally uh, conservative uh, policy uh, in in the good sense, um, and it's, it's certainly a, a very clearly a free market policy, but it's also conservative in terms of issues around the dignity of work. But if you want asylum seekers to integrate as successfully as possible into the UK, um, work is one of the best ways of doing that. There's a very well established relationship between the flexibility of labour markets and the ability of uh, migrants and uh, asylum seekers and refugees to successfully integrate. And it seems pretty clear why. If you're able to, to get a job, then you're speaking to local people who speak the local language. Um, you're getting a better idea of British customs, values, traditions, etc. than you would if you were just sitting at home on the government allowance of less than £6 a day, I believe it is, at the moment. Um, and the integration question actually kind of links with with people's concerns around crime as well. This is something that is often brought up and people concerned that asylum seekers tend to boost crime rates. Now, there's no evidence that they do when it comes to most categories of crime. But the one area where there is an argument that they do is when it comes to things like petty theft or uh, minor acquisitive crimes. It seems like a big factor driving this. And this is certainly what um, what researchers who, who've looked at this before have suggested is the fact that while you're in a situation where you've got six pounds a day to buy food and clothing for your family and you're not allowed to get a job, what other way might you decide to to be able to pay for those things, right? So lift the ban is fundamentally, a, in my opinion at least, a, a, an anti-crime policy as well as um, mm. one that promotes integration and has positive fiscal impacts. And of course, it also... Um it's important in the kind of context of tackling modern slavery because the vulnerability yep. that people have to exploitation is so looking to find work for their families is is enormous so i, I wanted to ask you both perhaps starting with you johnny if, if you think the overton window uh on this type of policy has shifted um because we've seen over the last 10 years and particularly and then especially so post-brexit attitudes towards immigration softening that, that britain appears to be becoming more welcoming of of immigrants and and perhaps more open to, to higher levels of immigration and integration. So do you think the public would be broadly supportive of lifting the ban? So the Lift the Ban Coalition ran a, a whole bunch of polling on, on these ideas and found that over 70% would agree that it would be beneficial to give asylum seekers the right to work, um, as outlined by the campaign after six months, um, and less than 10% disagree with that claim. That's true. That runs true in the Red Wall. It runs true in Boris Johnson's constituency, in Rishi Sunak's constituency, in Pretty Patel's constituency. And so really, in terms of what the public think, they are not in agreement with the Home Office on this point around the pool factor. So yes, I think I think that the, the Overton window on this particular issue has shifted. I, I find it, one, one of the things I find really interesting more widely in the kind of refugee and asylum space is, is, what, is what people would countenance and I think the BNO policy, which we'll come to later, shows that actually there there is more openness to allowing people to come here in a controlled way than perhaps there would have been before. But the, the question is, it's very much one of uh, controlling people's minds. Yeah, I suppose it's that that post Brexit point that was made quite often during that that campaign, which is that people care most about having control over their their immigration policy as opposed to what the level of immigration actually is. And if you show someone a photo of a Syrian child washed up on a beach, pretty much everyone in Britain will agree that we should help them. I would hope so. I would hope so. Yeah, there's something of the uh, the Peter Singer drowning child thought experiment in this, though, I find, where you know, you'd ask someone 
um, for, for those who don't know the thought experiment, you come across a drowning child uh, and there's no one else around and you can save the drowning child, but you might get your shoes wet, but presumably everyone would, would go to do that. Uh, and then you say, okay, now you found 10, now you found 100, you know, how does that change your moral intuitions? And I feel like because increasingly over the past few years, what we've seen is, is a more a more human, more emotive storytelling when it comes to some of the reasons why people are, are choosing to seek refuge on our shores. People are, are starting to, to kind of, you know, put put a face um, to, to the numbers that are often talked about. And that's not to say that everyone, you know, suddenly changed their mind. There's still um, and perhaps an increasing amount of concern around uh, around channel crossings in what well, for this year, certainly the projections that they're going to increase quite significantly. And, and there's concern especially amongst communities that, that are close to the coast around that but it does seem like the the kind of narrative of oh uh, brexit was all about reducing numbers there might have been some truth to it but the the sovereignty and control aspect i think is more important than perhaps some people on the pro-migration side of the debate initially thought uh, and if you look at polling just on brit's general attitudes towards migration over the past decade or so it doesn't seem to be shifted very much by brexit and it seems to be a story of generally attitudes becoming more positive um going from around a third general support um 10 15 years ago to, to over two-thirds now um and th i mean those sort of numbers don't really tackle the the nuances and the specifics of people's attitudes very well but they do point to to a broad shift i think and people becoming more aware of some of the, the positives uh of of people from other countries arriving in the UK, making their home and getting jobs here. Well, speaking of that, I think that's a uh, a good segue into our next segment, Dan. If you want to, uh, if you want to tee that up. Oh, bringing back the excellent segues. I'm sure uh, <laughs> our former former co-host Matthew Lesh, if was if he was listening, he'd be very proud of you, John. It's been a year since the UK opened up a visa pathway for Hong Kongers with British National Overseas or BNO status to come to Britain. But many of those who currently face protest charges are still too young to access the scheme. Uh, a cross-party group of MPs have recently proposed an amendment to the Nationality and Borders Bill that would expand the BNO visa scheme to Hong Kongers who have a BNO status holding parent and are aged between 18 and 25. Uh, and I guess, Johnny, you've been, uh, or Hong Kong Watch more broadly, has been involved in these calls for extension. So what's the kind of substance and, and how is that actually going so far? Do we, are you pretty optimistic about this or is there mm. something that has come across significant opposition? So I think by and large seems to be quite, I feel quite optimistic about it all. Um, it was interesting seeing the kind of the first round of the campaign, as it were, in the uh, in the Commons with Damien Green leading an amendment that had the backing of seven former Tory cabinet ministers, plus another kind of, I think there were 35 Conservative MPs, plus all of the opposition parties supporting it. And so we're pushing close to the kind of numbers that would cause the government difficulties if they don't come to the table. But I think what's even more encouraging in this context is that there isn't really any reason that the Home Secretary sh shouldn't and wouldn't just change the immigration rules to, to kind of bring a positive policy into into place. It, it's a it's a really just a small tweak to the Hong Kong appendix and the immigration rules that's needed to to do this. And so I guess what what we're saying to them at the moment is why don't you just make this change? You can kind of put the parliamentary campaign to bed 
Well, I wanted to uh, to ask a bit about that because in the conversations that I've had with the Home Office on the subject, they've oftentimes come back with the argument that if young Hong Kongers are, are facing oppression from the CCP, that they should go through the channel of the asylum system, the political asylum system, as opposed to uh, trying to lobby to, to have access to the BNO visa scheme. I don't know if you've had that conversation at all and, or if you have any particular rebuttal to it. I mean, I think... Obviously, the asylum system, does the government really want to have loads more Hong Kongers in the asylum system pointing out the flaws and increasing the uh, the burden on on mm. on that? I'm, and not I'm being not able to work straight away, right? <laughs> spending, spending a year, all these kind of potentially productive Hong Kongers spending over a year sat waiting for a decision. I'm not, again, not convinced it's massively in their interest, particularly because for whatever reason, the, the story of of a Hong Kong pro-democracy activist probably cuts through in the right-wing media more than the story of the someone fleeing conflict from South Sudan. And I think uh, if that story were being repeated too much, it could put a lot of pressure on the Home Office, I would have thought. So I'm not sure it's in their interests to continue along that line. I think I also think yeah. it's it's a fair it's a very easy policy for them to rationalise. So those would be my those would be my pushbacks. Um, and that I, I don't fully understand, given the way that the government's rhetoric has always been framed around the BNO policy being a humanitarian route by and large yeah. um, one that is obviously beneficial to Britain but it is humanitarian in motive why would you create a policy that excludes the people who need it most do you think that this is likely to to end up increasing numbers significantly above what the initial BNO scheme did because I were at, what just under a hundred thousand so far have taken advantage of the existing scheme would this simply because you know the the captive audience as it were and I, I use captive intentionally um, would be far more likely to take it up than than perhaps the a kind of the general Hong Konger population do you see it quite a significant bump in numbers if this was the case I'm not sure we'd see that significant a bump um, in, in my view. I think particularly because the BNO policy is designed in a way like if, if anyone who really needed it from Hong Kong needed to, to, to use it, they would be able to. But you have to be able to prove that you have the income to um, support yourself. And so I think for some people, the people who are moving most most of the time at the moment are people with young families who don't want their children to be brainwashed. But I think what this route does is it rationalises the policy and it offers a way out for those who are desperate to get out. And I think that's those are the two key advantages. And so I'm not not convinced it would be an extra hundred thousand or something, but I think it would just be it would just provide the lifeline for those who who need it. And that eighteen to twenty fives group seems to make up basically almost all of those that have been um, been detained or have been accused of uh, mass protest mm. action. How do we actually characterize that group? Are they likely or even able to be able to take up an offer if Britain were to make it? What sort of things have they been? detained or accused of doing so i mean a lot of them are young people who are in universities and good universities like hong kong university cuhk and others um but who as a result of essentially their desire to see the political system that they've grown up in maintained as it was got involved in street protests and now been arrested for either illegal assembly or other kind of public order charges and so they will be coming here. A lot of them are very bright people with a lot of potential who um, who got involved in the protest movement and are now facing a crackdown. I mean, if you if you look at there's obviously a cross section of people being arrested, but the, the guys who were involved in in Legco and the the arrested Democrats, a lot of them are very very gifted people who some of the kind of the best of Hong Kong. I think. As a quick aside, do you know what happened with Denise Ho? 
I saw that she was arrested and she actually has spoken at an ASI event a couple of years ago now. Mm. We spoke to Joshua Wong uh, a couple of years ago, and obviously he's uh, in prison at the moment. Mm. Uh, and also now Denise Ho is someone we spoke to back in 2018, I think, who's yeah, now in prison. That. Yeah, what, what, on what charges was she was she arrested? If you so know. Denise was one of the trustees of Stan News, I think, which was yeah. the um, the media organisation, one of the pro-democracy media outlets that has been shut down and all of their staff have been arrested. And I think it's around some kind of sedition charges. So one of the things the Hong Kong government have been doing alongside um, charging people with the new national security law has been dredging up fairly broadly defined colonial era ordinances that haven't been used for 50 years and applying them as strictly as you can. So like the British government often gave themselves quite a lot of power if they needed to put down a rebellion, but they didn't use it very often. And the commons would have kept at least later on. Like I think in in, in the Hong Kong era, I'm not commenting here on how the British used its power in the 19th century, but in the Hong Kong era, the, um, the, the commons would have stopped really egregious breaches of that legislation because it the kind of court of public opinion in the UK wouldn't have allowed it. But now what we're seeing is seditious, sedition laws being used to shut down the free press, essentially. Um, and I think that is the law that Denise has been charged under because she's one of the, the kind of trustees of Stand, which was, after Apple Daily, the biggest online pro-democracy media outlet. Are there any left now, then? They're pretty much all gone. I think Hong Kong Free Press is an English language one and I think I think pretty much all the others have shut down and and Hong Kong Free Press may be protected by the fact that it's catering primarily to an expat audience and and where do we see how do, how do we see the CCP react if we were to to get through this amendment is there a precedent that we can use to judge how they might respond from the BNO case was that was there even much of a response other than obviously rhetoric and whatnot um, so there wasn't really, there's not much they can do. Um, and they didn't, in the BNO case, they haven't. They've, there's been lots of noise and dismay. But I think that comes back to the previous conversation we had, that because the rest of British-China policy is still quite tight with the Chinese government, they ha- they haven't necessarily used all of the tools of economic force that they, they could do. And I don't think they would if we were to tweak the, if we were to tweak the appendices to the, the BNO immigration rules. And I don't imagine that you'd, have a more severe reaction to to what happened previously. And I mean, I don't know if you remember, but Boris Johnson wrote wrote an op-ed for the South China Morning Post, which was really quite provocative uh, action about Mm. the BNO policy at the time. So if this were to pass, it wouldn't be a diplomatic incident of that kind, I don't think. And I think it would be be more like kind of a continuation of... The UK has made its displeasure about the Sino-British Joint Declaration pretty clear, and it has made it clear it's decided that sanctions go too far. And so it has set out, we will change our immigration policies and we will put a few more export controls on. And that has been the consistent position. And I think this would be a continuation of that rather than a, a massive step into something new. Great. And I, I think to finish off for anyone that's interested in the passage or the, the hopeful passage of this amendment, what's the sort of timeline? What should we be looking out for in the news for this? So I think it's going to be debated at committee stage in the House of Lords on the 10th of February, as that's, I think, what I expect. And then um, it will be back for a report in March and then kind of back to the Commons after that. I mean, I would I would hope with this, I mean, there are, there are other campaigns, I mean, the Lift the Ban one, for instance, where I imagine it will that will be pushed to the end because the Home Office don't really like the idea. But with this one, I, might, I would hope that there might be um, some kind of accommodation sooner than that, but we'll see. Well, on that optimistic note, I think it's probably time to finish off today's episode. And it just remains for me to thank our wonderful uh, guest Johnny Patterson, the co-founder and policy director at 
Hong Kong Watch, as well as my erstwhile co-host and director of strategy, John McDonald. You've been listening to the Adam Smith Institute's Pin Factory podcast. And if you like what you've been listening to, then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider. But until next week, uh, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you soon for more banter analysis.